The information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is not to be taken as financial or personal advice. It does not consider your objectives, financial situation or needs. You should consider whether this information is suitable for you and your personal circumstances before acting on it. Hi, and welcome to The Home Run, your guide to buying your first home in Australia. On this show, I'll walk you through the home buying process from every angle. We cover the steps to take, the pitfalls to avoid, and the answers to all your questions you've been dying to ask. No matter what stage you're at, you'll learn everything you need to know about buying your first home. I'm your host, Michael Nasser, and I'm a mortgage broker at Lens Street, and I really love helping people buy their first home. Today I'm joined again by Kent Lardner, the Director of Suburb Trends. Suburb Trends is a property research firm trusted by some of the biggest names in Australian real estate. You may remember Kent from our previous appearance on the show, where he explained the Reserve Bank's changes to interest rates and how they affect first home buyers. In this episode, Kent breaks down his Rental Pain Index, a detailed report on how suburbs across Australia are being affected by rising rental prices. He also shares an update on the current property market, including his biggest advice for anyone about to purchase their first property. Really excited about today's conversation, so let's jump in. Kent, welcome back to the show. Thank you. How long has it been? Probably two to three months, I'd say. Oh, okay. Yeah, there we the, go. I don't know if it feels longer or shorter for you, but uh, <laughs> maybe, busy. Yeah, that's right. maybe there's been a lot happening in between. So <laughs> mine's been occupied. So yes, yeah, so as we've alluded to, this is your second appearance on the show. And I know you know a lot about property in Australia, but I want to start out with a fun question before we dive into today's topic. And that is, if you could live anywhere else in the world other than Australia, where would you live and why? Malaysia. Really? I wouldn't have picked that. Okay. Yeah, I kind of follow a YouTube channel and it's a, a guy that's called Nomad Capitalist. Okay. And it's a fa- fantastic program. He's very talented and he's been promoting Malaysia as a great option. Lovely people, very cost effective, quality. You don't have a language barrier if you can only speak English. It's an ideal spot. And I think also because it's, there's a, a very strong religious base there, it creates a kind of culture that appeals to a lot of people, including me. So, yeah. Okay, that's, 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 that's really interesting. And from memory, you spent some time in Asia, I think, initially when you first started your working activities? I spent about a year in yeah, China. China, um, right. So Beijing and another spot called Harbin up way north, you know, minus 24, minus 25 oh, wow. degrees in winter, helping a company up there that was seeking to emulate the CoreLogic business model. Okay. So, yeah, no, and, uh, I guess... Um, Malaysia is an awesome response and, like I said, not one I would have thought of. I haven't been there yet. I haven't I've been, no, I've been everywhere else. Yeah. I haven't been there. But, you know, I am fascinated by it. But you know, the challenge is how do I get my wife and kids up there? That's Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. I mean, the nomad capitalist sounds like he's a bit of a nomad, so I don't, don't imagine he has a family to contend with when he's making these stuff. I'm not sure. I yeah. don't know about that. that yeah, <laughs> I, I, I love watching his show. So yeah, he's cool. on, on YouTube. Check that out for sure. Okay, today we're going to be talking about a recent tool that you've introduced to the market, which is known as the Rental Pain Index. And this comes by way of your, you know, your platform, Suburb Trends. To start off with, can you explain what the Rental Pain Index is? What I've endeavoured to do is capture a number of elements that would impact a renter. So it's a very much from a renter's perspective and the things that would impact the renter. So the first element is to measure how rents have increased in the last 12 months. Is there shock with the next rent review coming? So that's number one. The second one then we look at 
some of the things that are trending or things that could influence that rental price. So we, we move on to how many properties are advertised for rent currently as a percentage of the overall rental market. So how much stock, rental stocks on the market. And that has a correlation to rental increases, but probably a little bit simpler is it actually limits your choice. If there's not a lot advertised, you've got very limited, very scarce choice. So that's the second thing that creates some rental pain. The third and the fourth both relate to vacancy rates. So the first one is what's the vacancy rate trend? Is it going up or is it going down? If it's going up, that takes a lot of pressure off rental increases. If it's still going down, that puts pressure up on rents. And then current vacancy rates. Typically, we've gotten used to under 2% being kind of normal in Australia, and it's not. You know, normal is probably 2.5%, 3%. So one of the measures is, you know, is it below 1.5%, which really is a trigger for a lot of pressure on the rental market? And then the final and fifth metric that rolls up into that overall aggregate score is how much of my household income is being allocated to rent, which is an affordability metric. And generally, a 30% measure is the critical point. So if you're spending 30% or more, that's called a crisis or a severely unaffordable. And Australia, by the end of this year, I'm forecasting is about to tip on average into a 31% of household income being allocated to rent on average. So the country is in crisis. The numbers tell us that. Yeah, and that particular metric of the statistic of household income, I imagine affects certain areas. I know we're look, you're looking at Australia as an average and obviously Australia is a market within markets within markets. And so I'm assuming there are areas and territories that are probably more at risk. And are you seeing that in your initial findings? Absolutely. A couple of key things with any of these measures, we're using the median. So if you understand how medians work, you've got a lot of household incomes below the median mm. and another, you know, half of them are above and half are below. Same for rents. Some areas that distribution is very non-normal. So if you go to areas where there's a lot of retirees, there's a very long tail there where there's a lot of low, 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 low incomes, and that brings the median down. Now, it really then depends on where are these people living? Are they living in the house that they already own, et cetera? So that can throw the numbers out. So you always kind of keep that in mind that some areas bubble to the top for odd reasons, and some of those could be the numbers or the distribution of the numbers are the reasons why they appear. Put that to one side. The areas that do appear at the top of the list are those predominantly in the lower socioeconomic areas or lower income areas. And the problem we've got there is not just that they've got lower incomes, it's that they're spending 34 35% of the yeah. household income in those lower socioeconomic brackets. So the most disadvantaged areas are really feeling the squeeze because they're spending a higher proportion. If I compare, say, those in the lower socioeconomic, the the one or the two, they're spending in the mid-30s. If I go to the CIFR index, the socioeconomic index done by the uh, ABS, if I go up to the nine or the 10, they're spending 22, 23, maybe 24% of their household income. So they've got a lot more income and they're spending a lot less of it as a proportion. So the gap is really widening. And that old 
attitude we had as Australia of being egalitarian and look after your mates and that seems to be fading rapidly. Yeah, that's an interesting point that you raised there. You know, that's a, you know, we're looking out for each other and it seems that we're sort of dividing it up a little bit here and I don't think we are anymore. I think we stopped. Yeah, you know, sometime in the 90s, I think we all shifted our gaze to Gordon Gecko as a hero. And we've all, for the last 20 years, we've all sat around the pub or the cafe bragging about how much our house price has gone up, you know, how good on us. And for 30 or 40 years now, we've neglected social public housing. And we're paying the price for that now. And this will spill over. It's not an isolated cup. Yeah, and I'm sure there are some some big takeaways. And what would you see the biggest takeaway from this index now that we're starting to monitor that you're putting out now about the current states of rentals in Australia as a general observation? I think the big takeout is that the politicians, even though it may have taken 30 or 40 years to get here, a lot of the leaders now are focused on this. So whether that be Chris Minns in New South Wales, Anthony Albanese from a national perspective, this is a big focus now. So supply is the issue, not some half-hearted rental cap. You know, those rental caps are probably going to have the reverse of the intended effect. And I think these politicians are calling that out. They're not playing cheap politics. They're not playing short-termisms. They're actually recognising that the only solution is supply-driven. Rarely do I applaud politicians, but certainly they seem to be focused on the right thing now but they're carrying the can for 30 or 40 years of neglect. Yeah, and I guess that supply issue is definitely an issue and probably a conversation in its own right because it's got its its challenges. But in Sydney in particular, obviously, we're seeing a steering away to some extent of that high-density type of housing and style of or desirable asset class. And where do you see that supply coming from in most of the capital cities? The focus on New South Wales, for example, um, Chris Minns is highlighting that the infill is an important thing. Yeah density does need to go up. So he's looking at extra density, extra allowance for number of floors in return for an allocation of affordable housing. Yeah. So that's a a trade that's underway, which is healthy. Other things I'm seeing touted are a return to that medium density townhome come terrace home design. So there's a lot of common sense stuff coming out where they are calling out the limitations of the great urban sprawl. And, you know, in Sydney, we'll pick on Sydney, you know, Sydney's the basin and it's kind of running out of space and pushing into floodplains as the last resort of a place where, you know, places where you can build cheaply. It makes no sense. You're not building cheaply. You're just effectively kicking the can down the road until it floods. And then when it floods, you can't get insurance and none of us will get insurance. And certainly you'll pay the price long term. Global warming, I don't, you know, climate change, it doesn't matter who you attribute the cause to or what you attribute the cause to, it's happening, right? So floods will be more frequent, more common, more severe, and these areas that we're building are wrong. And so the politicians are calling that out correctly. And it's funny, you mentioned going back to what we've done. I mean, if you look back in inner Sydney in particular, there is a lot of terrace houses and there was a lot of, you know, and it's almost like, well, we did it at one point. So we kind of, at that stage, you know, and we pivoted away and now perhaps it's more coming back to that type of style of housing that we once had. And True. There's a great story online that talks about the history of why they stopped doing it. And the government of the time, they were the places where there were slums. So effectively when there were whether it be health-related issues, a disease being spread or crime or other things, 
after the depression, they kind of blamed, well, it, it appeared that the, the local government in Sydney, they blamed terrace housing and they never got past it. So the planning minister that highlighted this at the time was uh, Rob Stokes. There's a great story online about it that says, what happened to the terrace? And effectively, we never got back on track. So they were effectively banned and it never climbed back again. Yet I think anyone who walks through a Newtown or a Paddington in Sydney loves the vibe of the place. Now it's part of the charm of the suburb. It's part of the charm. So why wouldn't you do more than that? I just read something from, I think his name's Matt Endicott, and it was just a post that came out locally in Newcastle this morning, about an hour ago, and highlighting this same point. That's why it was top of mind. And he was saying we should be focusing on a number of these suburbs should be looking at that style of dwelling. And it's like, hallelujah, because I've lived in a terrace before in Newtown, and it was on 127 square metres, so quite a bigger block, but a lot of them were on 70 or 80 square metres, yet they feel quite private because of the design. You've got your own little courtyard out the back, and I think they're a wonderful approach to medium density. Yeah, and it's just funny, I had that thought because you'd mentioned it, and I was like, well, yeah, we used to do it, and what happened? We obviously stopped. And and that's what happened, And you know, a dis- whether it be disease or, or you know whatever it might have been. There was a government hand in stopping it, and that effectively put an end to it. And and we never really caught up again. We're seeing a lot of duplex, I guess, style of housing now that's coming up and cropping up in the different suburbs. And that's not, I don't think it's going to have the same impact that something like a terrace. It doesn't have the same impact. You know, we went into all these new sites and these greenfield sites and just started building three, four, 500 square metre lots. And imagine if they could have been 75, 80, 100 square metre lots. Wow. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's you're raising a lot of food for thought there. Um, and, and I guess that's, that's what politicians, I'm assuming, today are, are considering. And, and They're onto it. They are, they're not ignoring it. It's just the problem is you can't turn this problem around on a dime. No, no, because you've got to appeal to the, to the consensus and to the community. And I think there is a sentiment in the community about this type of, you know, a dwelling and this high density, I guess, type of living, which we, we as a community probably need to start to embrace as well. So I guess that's the challenge of the politicians. Yeah, I mean, that's what the city should be anyway. Yeah. You yeah. know, and there's a lot of airspace above public transport and there has been a lot of nimbyism. So if you talk to a lot of locals in and around these inner city locations, they don't want high-rise nearby. So that's the trade-off. That's the hard decision. I'm glad I'm not a politician. Exactly. And, and I guess as the times change and, and our needs as a society change, I guess so too will, will we, I guess, eventually. And then we'll start to probably embrace these types of changes that I guess need to address these issues. Now, bringing it all together, I guess, for first home buyers, how does the rental pain index and, the, you know, the data that's coming out of that, how does that affect first home buyers in particular? I think the biggest problem we've got for first home buyers is how do they save a deposit if they're in the rental market? Um, so what we've got is a, a real problem where we've got a cohort of people in the rental market that are effectively locked out or not part of the social housing, public housing. So, you know, they're trapped in a rental market spiral, spending 30 35 40% of their household income. You can't save much of a deposit if you're spending 35 or 40% of your household income on rent after fuel and food and whatever. So we've really created a situation where the only first home buyers that are going to be successful are going to be those living at home or from a wealthy family. So suddenly 
the postcode or the family that you're from determines whether you can enter the housing market or not. And again, it's that we're stepping away from that egalitarian fair go attitude. It's gone. Yeah. And I guess that's what's been happening in our society as we've developed as a nation. We're 50 years more advanced than what we were obviously 50 years ago. That's a, that's a pretty basic statement. But it seems to be, and you alluded to it, that not that the rich are getting richer, but the people that have property can now leverage that. And so I see a lot of guarantor type of loans and those types because they just can't make up the deposit. So you're relying on your parents having that asset or to leverage off. And if you don't, well, then all of a sudden you're in a more difficult situation and then you get segregated and you can't potentially buy, even though you might have the borrowing capacity potentially, but you don't have the deposit. And if you depending on how that works, but there are incentives and that the government are coming up with things that, you know, they're contributing. So you're not paying LMI with a 5% deposit and things like that. So I guess that's helping it out as well. But yeah, definitely the higher rents mean less saving and that definitely affects. Well, look, I think people have got to take responsibility and pick their parents better. Yeah, right. So that's, that's a good point. We'll see how we can do that. We might start a podcast on how we can do that, but I don't know. That's, that's what a bit, bit of a bit of a non-move that one. I don't think we can do much about that. So if we're looking at the current market at Suburb Trends, you also do a lot of reporting around the current state of the market in general. So obviously we're focused on that rental pain index, but I'd love to hear some of your insights about how things are looking at the moment for anyone about to purchase their first home. What is the property market looking like right now and how are you seeing things? Yeah, it's a fascinating time. Very hard to pick. If I start nationally, I don't like to do it because it's always markets within markets. You know, it's, it's, I kind of like to liken it to say there's about probably 500 markets using the statistical area three or the SA3, which we covered last time. So region by region, market conditions vary a lot. But if I was start at that macro level, I would say that things are still, I would argue that the market on the whole is slowing slightly. Listings are very, very down and trended down. That's keeping prices up. But if you balance out how much listings are relative to how many properties are selling, I would argue that the market's slightly softened. So inventory levels are slightly higher because demand's dropped off because of the things we've just mentioned is that, you know, we've got loan serviceability. We're adding 3% buffer on top of the top and it's probably not going to go up again. We shouldn't be adding 3% on now. We should be adding half or 1% as the buffer and then that would open up the market a little bit more. Yeah. So I would I would argue because of that loan serviceability calculator issue, demand has dropped off slightly more than the listings drop off, which tells me that at a macro level, at a countrywide level, at the market's slightly softer, but prices are holding up rather well because there's just no listings out there. Yeah, and that's that's sort of been the case for the last couple of months, hasn't it? Where because of the lack of stock, the market has been in a bit of a holding pattern with prices. But if you were to influx it with a bit of stock, it would open Pandora's box potentially. It would. We're not truly testing the market. And I think what's underwriting this is the fact that pipeline supply is awful. And that, you know, we've got, if you look at the amount of developers, builders that have gone under, look at their cost. It's amazing. You know, I was warned of this about two years ago. Really? Uh, yeah, that you know, three years ago, I think it might have been, from the institute, the, the Builders Institute, housing industry, well, one of those, one yeah. of the Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they just got a you know, little tap on the shoulder and said, look, you know, they're going to be probably a third of the 
builders and developers are under a lot of stress and might disappear in the next 12 months. Yeah, and that seems And that happen. happened. Yeah. That's happened. It's almost like almost daily you, you, you read the news and another... Another build, one's gone. Another one's another gone. Another one's gone. And that's, you know, it's like we love to hate property developers, but, yeah, you know, this is what happens, right? We, you don't, if you don't have any stock, people decide, well, I can't find anything to buy, therefore I'm not going to list my property and sell. And we've got this situation where we all thought that, the abundance of baby boomers sitting in these rather large three and four bedroom houses, empty nesters, are still holding on, still staying put. You know, they don't really want to live in a retirement home. They prefer a, a nice small house, low maintenance, whatever, but they can't find them because that particular style of property has been snapped up. Yeah. There's not many of those on the market, which goes back to our opening conversation. Imagine. Imagine a nice little terrace home in Naruma, right? <laughs> you know, I'd sell up in Sutherland and I'd move down to Naruma. Yep. But where is it? It's not there. What's not there? It doesn't exist. So, so you can't yeah. sell. And, and and I guess, yeah, that's that's what's been holding the property prices to the extent that they are. Considering, like you've mentioned, the borrowing capacities have been hit majorly in the last 12 months and even some lenders have actually introduced. They're called mortgage prisoners basically and if someone can't get access to a better rate because they're on a higher rate and, you know, adding that 3% on the rate now doesn't allow them to service, some lenders allow you now to use a 1% borrowing buffer. I think it was Westpac where well, I was on a call yeah. earlier this week and I think Westpac were, were tabling this. Well, they, they've got it. So Westpac, St George and okay. and the other one uh, is, uh, well, ANZ is a little bit different, but Westpac and St George have it. The problem that I find with that as a broker is it depends what the rate starts at. So sometimes there are lenders out there that provide a better rate and so you're adding that 1% onto the rate that they're going to end up on. And so if they're already 1.5% higher than a rate that you can get with another bank... It's the same effect. Exactly. And so what I'm finding is that even though I can get access to that policy for some of our clients, it's still not assisting them because we can't get a lower rate to base that 1% off because they've suddenly increased. And that's where I start thinking, well, why would they be doing this? And, you know, anyway, they, these are more general observations that I'm finding. And But it is what it is. And, and that's where borrowing capacities are being... It's a, it's a conversation I have daily with my clients. It's about, you know, it's not what it used to be in terms of borrowing capacity and this is what it is and with the rates always going up it's that conversation it's now a little bit less than what it was this time last month now this month it held which is good and hopefully that's not going to be the case anymore and it'll be interesting to see what that looks like and I guess this leads into my next question what you know and what you've seen happen and I guess with your experience in the market what are you expecting to see over the next say six months with housing pricing I think more of the same because my forecasts are that listings volumes are dropping now, something might shift, something might change, but I've just finished an analysis for the AFR and I just just effectively was predicting what the listings volumes are leading into spring. So I just did a, a rather simple model with my friend, chat GPT, code <laughs> interpreter, put in the time series data, did the trend fit, and it just came up with effectively a, a rather significant fall in percentage of, of listings. So... If that holds true, and these models, are, there's lots of assumptions that need to hold for this. So if that holds true and listings volumes stay where they are or even go down further, I just say what we've seen in the last six months is what we'll see in the next six months because the situation hasn't changed much. The only thing that's changed is interest rates are, have levelled out. It doesn't look like that fear factor is there anymore. One thing I do see continuing, however, 
is the crowding out or the effectively the ripple effect moving into the more affordable spots. Okay. So a lot of investors are still flushing out and finding and probing and looking for the under 400 or the under 500. So if I ever put a, a report up on my website as a, a download, free download or whatnot, it's always the under 500, 10 to 1 ratio, best buys under 500, best buys under whatever. And, yeah, I do them in price brackets and it's always the lowest price bracket one is a ratio of probably 10 to 1 download. So that tells you a lot about where the sentiment is. All right, and I, and I guess that's that holding pattern. I think I think one of the triggers that may pivot that particular holding pattern is when rates do drop and maybe borrowing capacities do increase and it'll be interesting to see when that happens and as to when that happens, we're not sure. Obviously, we're tackling that bigger issue of inflation, and that's another conversation, which is, you know, which can it's another topic, which I don't want to get into at the moment. But um, but yeah, it's uh, at the moment. I I agree with you. I, I seem to feel like it is going to be. It's still a holding pattern as things level out and not normalise, but become the new normal, I guess. Yeah, and there's no pipeline supply, so you can't say that there's a white knight coming in in the form of new stock. Yeah, and- because they if that fell off a cliff, talk about the mortgage cliff, what about the pipeline building approval cliff? And it's not just building approvals, then you've got to apply the completion rate, which is dropped. So, you know, the stuff coming on is just dried up. Now, how do you fix that? That's where you need the government to intervene because the market hasn't sorted itself out. It's as far away from laissez-faire as you could imagine the housing market, right? The government's got its hand all over it. So guess what? You know, your hands are all on it. You break it, you fix it. No, it's true. It's not a free market at all. It is very much stipulated by government, whether it's local, whether it's state and federal. And there are so many, so much red tape and so many things that have to work out. And and rightly so, I guess, to some extent. But at the end of the day, if it's the handbrake that if needs it to breaks, be, yeah. if it breaks, if if something goes wrong, you've got ownership of the problem because the market's not allowed to fix itself. Yeah. So what would your biggest piece of advice for anyone looking to purchase their home in the current market be, their first home? Look, at the moment, affordability is probably the hot thing, affordable property types, good location. So I would argue, and this is probably the same argument that any old school conservative value I would have told me 30, 40 years ago was, you know, look for something you can afford in a good spot. Look for something with some scarcity. So, you know, what would that look like? That pretty much looks like a a walk-up unit. You know, a walk-up unit near rail looks pretty damn good to me. As a first-home buyer, just don't overdo it. Don't overcook it. And then if you're kind of one step back and still working on that deposit, suck it up and get along with the parents or the you know, the in-laws, whatever. Just live in the granny flat, live in the garage for a year or two and just get that income up because you don't want to be spending it all on, on rent. So get your deposit up by living in the garage and suck it up and don't get the fancy car. Yeah, or the trip to Europe. Yeah, don't do it. Just don't do it. Hunker down. It's the same advice we all got 30, 40 years ago. It has not changed. Yeah, Instagram might not be too happy. Your Instagram profile with all the nice pictures. Well, it's all fake crap anyway, right? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And I think first-home buyers need to understand that if they are looking to purchase a home, there's got to be sacrifice. And it's that delayed gratification. It's definitely something that's going to serve you better in the long run. So if it means moving in with mum and dad or your in-laws or and just do it and focus on getting that deposit up. All right, so some final thoughts. Um, two questions I want to finish up on. The first one is, in your opinion, what should first home buyers prioritise in their search for their first home? If they're looking at one thing in particular, and we might have already touched on this, what would it be that you would want them to prioritise? Look for the crappy carpet and the crappy paint. Okay. Yeah, look for that and don't step away from that and say, I want the refined, polished, perfect. Yeah. 
you know, look for the stuff that other people are overlooking or step away from. You know, when I hear someone say, yeah, the house has got really dirty old carpet and overgrown at the open house, I go, brilliant, because that's going to knock out one third of the buyers. So look for the ugly, but, the th- you know, and then the other things are you, the position won't change. Mm, mm. You know, the position, the walking distance to the rail won't change. Yeah. And you mentioned that the walk uh, walk up unit close to the rail, I think, uh, and, and amenities totally. What's one thing you wish you knew before you bought your first home? What I wanted to do long term, and probably two parts to that. What I wanted long term, and work harder on getting my wife to share that vision. Yeah. Okay. There was a That's- disconnect between what I thought was the future horizon. So the example was we bought a lovely Art Deco apartment in Coogee, but I wanted to buy for the same price a house in Belrose near my wife's parents because I said when we have kids, much more convenient, etc. Now let's compare and contrast that. That same price property back then, that unit, 900K now, the house that we would have bought in Belrose, 2.3, 2.4 now. Wow. That's the difference. Same price. And I could almost guarantee we probably would have been living still in that same first house. Okay, so you went, you went the apartment path? We went the apartment in Coogee. Then we went to a house in, in the west in Balmain. Had a really big mortgage because we had an investment property as well. I couldn't handle it. You know, I couldn't handle the big mortgage and irrational, but it was just, hey, I am who I am, right? So I didn't handle that stress of just not knowing, even though I had a good job in LMI and whatever, I didn't like it. So that pressure, I thought, let's let's deal with this. Our kid came along and we said, let's pack up and sell the house in Balmain. And we moved into a rental property we already owned in Newcastle. So my wife didn't have to go back to work. And the mortgage was really, really small and easy to wipe out. And so that we did that just to de-stress our life. It wasn't the best thing in terms of wealth building, but it was health building. Yeah, well, life is more than wealth, so. So that was it. So I'm a data analytics guy. I'm not the guy that's got the big portfolio. That's not me. I just I doubled down on just putting my money into super because I didn't like the stress of property management and whatever. So, you know, it's, it's horses, of course, is what individual people like. I like the superannuation yeah. approach. But, yeah, so to answer the question, what I would have done is just make sure that I had the shared values and shared shared that vision with my wife a little bit better. Yeah. Well, it's the first time I've asked that question and I think that what you've raised there is, is pure gold because having that conversation and most importantly with your partner at the time about what your long-term plans are and I don't think many first home buyers, if any, would be doing that. I definitely try and ask, with my first home buyer clients, I will always ask what's the next step and I've been in that situation where I've purchased my first home, I've, you know, I'm married, had kids, had that whole, oh, need to move out, need more space, all that sort of stuff. So I've seen that and I didn't have that conversation before I started and maybe your asset selection might be different or maybe you'll save a little bit longer so you can get that house or whatever that may be as opposed to the unit just to get in. So it's a really interesting question and response and I, and I think there's a lot in that and it's just as simple as a conversation and some steps and some strategies perhaps when it's purchasing that first property. So I think that's a great tip. Thank you for that. And that's pretty hard because that was 30-odd years ago. Really hard to then compare and contrast that to what a young couple or a young individual might be faced with a day, but the principles should be the same. Totally the same, I would think as well.
Yeah, cool. So that's a great answer. Thank you for that. And thank you again for joining us on the show today. Um, if our listeners want to find out about you and where, where they can see your, you know, a suburb finder and things like that, where's the best place that they can get in touch with you? Yeah, just uh, visit suburbtrends.com, suburbtrends.com. We've relaunched the website and we've doubled down on chat GPT. Yeah, right. That's, that's interesting. I'm going to be checking that out myself. But, uh, yeah, that's where people can find The links will be in the show note as well. Thank you so much for joining me on the show and thank you for your valuable insights. It's been great. Thanks so much. Thank you. No problems at all. You've been listening to The Home Run, your guide for buying your first home in Australia. This podcast was produced by Lenstreet. Lenstreet is a mortgage broker and home loan specialist that helps first home buyers find the right loan to meet their needs. We know applying for a loan can be overwhelming and complex, so we help guide and support first home buyers through the process from start to finish. To find out more, head to our website, lendstreet.com.au. We've also put a link in the show notes. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Home Run, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Michael Nasser, and we'll be back next episode covering another step on the journey to owning your first home.